he made a three or four hundred thousand dollar mistake right there. And and you know, unfortunately, um, I, I've seen it happen all the time. TCO Method, the only show focused on helping you massively increase your net operating income. I am Andy McQuaid, and in this Saturday special, I have a special guest with me to talk about everything commercial real estate, Dan Lukowitz. He is a seasoned real estate veteran with over 15 years experience in all facets of the real estate industry, starting his career house hacking. He moved on to house flipping around Metro Detroit, created a company called Renaissance Real Estate Ventures that specializes in acquisition, financing, renovation, and resale of large single-family residential properties in the city of Detroit. Before joining Encore Real Estate Investment Services as Senior Director, Dan was a Senior Advisor at Fortis NetLease, specializing in commercial real estate investment sales. He's a former business development exec for Amazon in Detroit and currently Senior Director of Real Estate Investment Services and specializes in shopping centers, medical office, pharmacy, quick service restaurants, and auto repair and parts stores, as well as resorts. Dan has five amazing children, resides in Birmingham, Michigan with his wife, Brady, and enjoys running, boxing, lifting weights, yoga, and playing acoustic guitar. I had no idea you did guitar. Like we've talked before. I'm not a musician. My family is full of them. Had no clue. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me. This is, uh, this is exciting. You are my second guest on the podcast. First one was Yona awesome. twice. So you are, you are number two. I do a lot of talking at the camera. And then I do, I'm trying to do two of these interview episodes a month to kind of broaden everybody's horizons and teach them stuff that I'm not an expert in. You want to talk building materials, construction, reno, value add, NOI increasers. Awesome. Multifamily, I'm good. Anything outside of that, I'm a noob, so I'm here to learn too. Um, and it's a crazy market right now, Dan. What, what are you seeing? What are, what are you feeling? What's, what's on your radar? How are you treating the current downturn? There's a lot of negativity on Twitter, on LinkedIn. The news is doom and gloom and the world is ending. The sky is falling. What do you see? Yeah, great question. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. I mean, I've enjoyed getting to know you over the years and, you know, conversing about all different types of things, uh, real estate and education related. So it's nice to, you know, sit down and be able to do this. You know, the question you asked me is something I get a lot. And it's not just, you know, you think, oh, wow, everyone's asking about the market today. Well, no, they ask about the market every day. They've been asking about the market for years and and they're not going to stop. So, you know, what are my thoughts? You know, what are my takes on, 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 you know, the market today? What am I seeing? You know, I'm. I, I definitely like to uh, be well read, be educated, know what's going on in the world. Um, but I spend the majority of my day with my head down, focusing on, you know, th- what I know is tried and true for me to be successful as a broker and an investor. So none of that's changed. You know, I've just kind of maybe put, you know, just like I did during COVID, put, uh, you know, both feet on the gas because I see a lot of people. Whenever I see a lot of people saying that things are bad and maybe we should just, you know, write off the next six months or a year. That's when you know my eyes light up and I just you know double down and you know focus on what I know works. So 
I'm seeing, you know, in terms of the market, yeah, there's definitely a, a, a like a dislocation between buyers and sellers still. It's getting a lot better because this has been going on for about a year, year and a half. But um, there had been a very large dislocation where sellers were thinking, well, hey, prices are still where they were during the heyday. And buyers were thinking, well, hey, prices are going to be are, are where they're going to be in you know, a year or two years. And it was very hard to, to help, you know, them meet in the middle, which is in essence, a large part of my job as a broker. Um, that's definitely getting better. Um, I will say we haven't seen a whole lot of price movement. I, mean, I think that we were in a period of price discovery, where people were trying to figure out what was going to happen with the commercial real estate market. We uh, in the net lease side of things have not seen a tremendous amount of movement. And I feel that prices are stabilizing with recent interest rate hike declines, so to speak. Um, and and the belief or the sentiment amongst many that these uh, increases are going to slow down, if not stop, very soon. I think we're seeing the market start to react to that in a very positive way. Um, you know, I myself personally, as a broker, um, have focused uh, a little bit more on uh, distressed assets, uh, vacant assets, short-term assets, uh, just situations where sellers are going to be motivated to sell, as opposed to more of like the bread and butter, you know, five cap Starbucks or four cap Chick Fil A. Uh, deals that 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 you know a lot of the market um, in terms of of who would be an ideal purchaser you know has kind of fallen out since financing is is not accretive in situations like that. Right. And speaking of financing, I've seen a lot of static, and I've actually dealt with some of my clients who have gotten the crunch from their lenders, whether it be you know one of the bigger banks or private money. People are really taking a hard look at underwriting. They're really taking a hard look at even non-performing assets to justify the expense. They're looking at track records and other stuff too, but there's a lot of people putting the brakes on. I had a client who had a refi done in April when they were at 82% occupancy. They got up to 95. There was supposed to be another refi coming up in September. And the lender basically said, yeah, we're not giving you any more. You got what you got. And um, you still need to be at 95%, by the way. <laughs> So what are, what are what are you seeing? Like what's what's going on with lending? Again, it's been doom and gloom and nightmares in the marketplace, but I think there's a lot more of that coming from the less experienced, less seasoned operators than from the the really established relationship builders. So where are you on that? Yeah, so I mean, I, I kind of enjoy hating on multifamily, um, but you know, <laughs> I, I think a lot of that is on the multifamily side. I think you know, I, I look at, I mean, and I'm I'm not joking, honestly. Because the you know I look at 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 what I do in the net lease space, we don't have pro formas. We have numbers. We have real expenses, real income. We have leases that tell you exactly what the rent is going to be, and we know who's responsible for what. Whereas in multifamily, I think over the years, a lot of as you alluded to, Andy, inexperienced operators came in and they started really you know pumping up the numbers and you know factoring in incredible increases in rent. And, and no increases in material costs or labor costs and things like that. And because it's a pro forma, it, it, it's, it's subject to interpretation and, and it's subject right. to kind of being manipulated a little bit. So I think that that's one of the reasons why we're seeing a lot of crunching going on in the lending world for multifamily. As it pertains to my world, to you know, net lease, you know, my contacts, my lenders, my loan brokers, they're eager to loan. I mean, I've got a couple Good. of deals going on right now, you know, shopping centers in great markets. Borrowers were successful in obtaining 75% loan to value and 25% amortization. Another thing I've noticed, Andy, which is is interesting, this could be a whole dialogue in and of itself, is that, you know, obviously, if you have a deal that's, let's just take a six cap deal. When mm -hmm. rates were 3%, that deal cash flowed, right? 
when right. rates are, are, are six and, and three quarter percent, right, which is roughly where they are today, that deal's not going to cash flow. Um, right. So what I've seen lenders do, and it always concerns me a little bit when lenders get more creative than brokers, right? So I've seen the lenders get creative and they take a deal that used to be a deal they would finance at a 20-year amortization. And today right. they're financing it at a 25-year amortization. So oh, interesting. Finding, yeah, they're finding ways to make the deal work by lowering you know, the debt, the, the essentially their debt service payments, what those would be by pulling out the amortization. Now, I don't necessarily like that because you're still having the same five, seven or 10 year term. So you're just right. burning off, you know, less of your, uh, you know, less of your money is going to your principal, if any at all. That's interesting. I hadn't heard that yet, but I don't play yeah. a lot in the net lease space. So that's, that's, it, it's, do you think they're exposing themselves to more risk or are they just hoping that they're going to be able to refi this thing when rates come back down and it'll, all things will be hunky dory? You know, in general, like I said, I think that the lenders are eager to lend on good product. I am scratching my head a little bit on deals like that, wondering, you know, what is the bank's, you know, um, philosophy? I've got some very, very experienced friends uh, in the syndication and investment space uh, that I talk to on a regular basis. I just had a conversation with one of them yesterday. And, you know, one of his statements to me uh, when we were talking about a deal that I was looking into was, oh, well, listen, you've got three years to refi this deal if you buy today and you'll still have decent lease term left. And I bet that within the next three years, rates are going to come down. So when I when I start hearing things like that, I get a little concerned because it's anyone's guess what's going to happen. And I think that if a lender is today saying, okay, we'll take this high-risk deal that doesn't work for the borrower and we'll make it work by stretching, stretching out the amortization, because yeah, in, in three to five years, we're going to be able to refinance this deal at, at a better rate and it'll make sense. I think that's very risky, especially today. No one really knows you know, what's going to go on. It's very possible that, you know, I hate this phrase, but it's very possible that this is the new normal, right? It's very possible that five to seven and a half percent interest rates are the new normal and that asset prices will adjust further. It's also pr- possible. I mean, I, I think the, the greater, the, the more likely outcome here, Andy, is that we'll see one more rate increase this year. And then 2024, things are going to really start to level off. And maybe we'll start seeing some decreases towards the end of 24, which I think would really, really you know, put some gasoline onto this this fire. I really believe that commercial real estate is, is still very strong. And it's just kind of like this, like these smoldering embers that when an event like that happens, it's going to throw some gasoline on the fire and wake things up. Yeah. Yeah. I, I tend to agree with you on on one more increase. And then next year towards the end, maybe we'll see them start to to pull back a little bit. I think it's yeah. still, you know, the market overall is so fragmented. Like you know, tertiary markets haven't caught up to primary markets and declines and 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 leveling. It's just it's all over the place, and there's no apparent rhyme or reason to it outside of you know population inflow and outflow from you know blue states to sunbelt to whatever. So you know, as far as I'm I'm seeing it on my side, the the government just took their fingers and went like this and swirled the pot, and who the heck knows where everything's going to settle? Like I. I stopped making predictions about a year ago as soon as they were like, oh, we're just going to create this 40-year mortgage for all these homeowners to pay for these more expensive homes that are caused from inflation. Yeah. I was like, I don't know what to do anymore because that just changed the game. Again, I, I don't know what this is. I, like, I've never lived through that before. Like, I remember 2007, 2008, I was selling lumber to home builders. Like, that was my thing. So I was ready for that when it came because I saw it from a mile away in the industry on the supply side. Right now, I have no idea. Like that's a whole new game. Construction is still strong. Interest rates are through the roof. 
I don't know where it's going to go, but people are paying $325 a square foot for new construction. Right. I don't know how they're going to pay for it. Like 40 year, I mean, to that, your point, stretching the amortization out on the 40 year mortgage. If you look at the table, they're at less than 7% equity after paying a mortgage for, for 10 years. Are you I know, kidding I've me? I've seen it. I, I, I know I wrote a whole post about it. The residential space is, is, a, is a different animal. I mean, you've oh, got an incredible supply constraint there. So I, I just, I mean, one would have thought that if, if the Fed goes, you know, from a federal funds rate of effectively zero to five and a half percent, you know, that they would have put, taken the housing market to a screeching halt and that prices would have tumbled. And they really didn't. Mm-hmm. They really didn't. No. In fact, what's interesting is that in addition to the supply constraint that you have in general, that you just have an underbuilding of homes for so long, you also now have an, a, like an underwillingness, so to speak, of sellers to sell because I'm not selling. I love my home, but I, I I would I would seriously consider selling right now, but and moving somewhere else. But I'm not doing it because my mortgage is two point seven seven percent, and to right. buy the same exact house next door, my payment is going to be you know an inc- an incredibly large amount more. Mm-hmm. It makes it worth it for for guys like me. I live out in the sticks in upstate New York. My mortgage is cheap. My taxes are ridiculous, but the attractiveness of going somewhere else for whatever reason and just keeping this and renting it or keeping it and and doing like strs or or whatever because i'm by the lake it's huge but you know that's that's really not what we're here to talk about i really want to pick your brain on on what's going on on the commercial side from what you're seeing now there's you know there's a big push currently on the retweet space and on linkedin towards exactly what you do because it is performing better and i don't really want to talk about office and i know that's not really your your wheelhouse but you know there's all the doomers that are like office will never recover and now there's all these layoffs and all the other stuff like what direction if somebody's getting into doing bigger commercial stuff right they're looking to transition over from multifamily or single family and flips and that kind of stuff and and to get into your space where do you see the most opportunity for them? Where do you see them being able to, you know, mitigate or minimize their risk and and you know cash flow on stuff? And and then after that, I want to ask you about some ways that that you and your team um, really help people develop that. I guess industry knowledge because i know that you've done a bunch of stuff to to teach people and train people and and bring them in and mentor them into this space yeah great question so i would say right now there's probably three main spaces that i think are the most attractive and lucrative for someone who wants to you know these are not by the way (laughs) strategies for someone who is just watching a youtube video and is like oh i want to jump into commercial real estate these are for someone who has experience and knowledge Okay, it's and they're definitely something that you can learn even if you don't have experience, um, but not something I'd recommend jumping into. So they are as follows. I guess I'll just name them and then we can go through each one. So the first one I would I would call the blend and extend, which is something we'll talk about in a minute. The second one would be uh, like a retail repurposing play, and third one would be value add shopping centers. So in that order. The, the blend and extend is a very interesting strategy that people ask me about a lot. So if you look at a commercial real estate deal, a net lease deal, your, your price is going to be a function of many things, okay? So your price is going to be a function of lease term, right? The longer the lease term, the more valuable the property because the less risk. 
tenant. So the, the, the stronger the tenant, the, the better the asset, right? Obviously, there's other things like rent bumps. You know, a deal that has 2% rental escalations annually is better than one that has, let's say, 10% every five years or 1.5% every, every year. Um, and then obviously, you've got things like your, you know, your market and your demographics and your traffic counts and your visibility. But for our purposes, like a lot of those things you can't change, right? Like you can't change the market. You can't change the traffic counts. You can't change the visibility, the ingress, the egress. But what you can change is you can change the lease terms, okay? So I'll give you a perfect example of, of a deal that I had um, with a client and, and how I advised them. So this client had a, a well-located Walgreens that was an out parcel to a shopping center that they also own. So they built the shopping center. And then when I say out parcel, that's essentially like former parking lot that was right. built to house you know, a property. So they built this property twenty almost 20 years ago. Signed a 20-year lease with Walgreens. Um, there was about 12 or 14 months left on the lease. So very short-term, very high risk because Walgreens could vacate. Walgreens traditionally pays very high rent. At this site, they were paying $290,000 annually. Not terribly high for Walgreens, but high for you know net lease in general. And uh, you know they had, like I said, about 12, 14 months left on the lease. So at that point, I'm going to just get out my calculator. I like to rely on that as opposed to my mm-hmm. brain. Um, but so at that point, then this was, this was a couple of years ago. So the deal was cash flowing 290,000 annually, but it had about 12, 14 months left on the lease. So that was like probably a nine cap deal at the time. So if you do the math, that property was worth about 3,222,000. So we'll remember that number 3,222,000. So what I advised was that they would do what's called a blend and extend. And in this example, the owner did the blend and extend. But in, 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 for our purposes, you could come in and purchase this building and then do the blend and extend. So let me just define the term because I've said it 15 times and haven't, haven't really defined it. A blend and extend is where you take a certain aspect or aspects of the lease, right? And in exchange for a change that benefits the tenant, you extend the lease. So you blend the lease and you extend the lease. So this deal that had $290,000, but only about a year left, worth about $3.22 million, right? What I advise them to do is to go back to Walgreens and say, I want a brand new 10-year lease, right? So they did that. And Walgreens says, that's totally fine. No problem. We'll do it. But we're going to drop the rent from two ninety, dollars right, to two twenty-five. dollars So what is that? A $65,000 decrease. So the first thing people think is exactly the look that was on your face, Andy. Like, oh. Last thing I want is to lower my rent. Why would I do that? That's my lifeblood. That's my value. And the answer is, it is your lifeblood. It is your value, but it isn't. Really, your value is, is a function of the rent and the cap rate. Now, a 12-month deal, we said, was like a nine cap. Right. But a 10-year deal at the time would have traded at about a 585 cap. So watch this. The $65,000 decrease in rent brings you down from 290 to 225. 225 at a 585 cap is 3,846,000. You just, by the stroke of the pen, increased your equity in your property by $624,000 and change. Okay. You didn't, and I'm, I'm a former flipper, right? I'm a recovering house flipper, right? So you didn't go in there and manage contractors. You didn't put a new roof on. You didn't, you know, rip out walls and change layout. You didn't do any of that. In fact, the only thing you did was you rehabbed the lease. So for me, a guy who loves value add and loves this whole like, here's a before, here's an after, it's incredible because 
the before and after look exactly the same. It's the same exact quality. That's crazy. I buy it a million times and not know. But the lease is different and the value is different. Wow. That is strategy number one that I would recommend today for value add. And you can find it all over the place because you've got a lot of tenants that would love a rent reduction in exchange for a longer term lease. So that was the blend and extend. The next one that I mentioned was, I believe, retail repurposing. Retail repurposing. Great example. I'm in the middle of one right now with some clients. Former Burger King, also an out parcel to a shopping center, right? Now, this Burger King was operated by a company called Tom's Kings. Tom's Kings was a, a relatively large Burger King operator. They had 91 locations. And in March, they kind of surprised the industry by filing for bankruptcy. So they filed for bankruptcy. And this particular site, they completely walked away from. They turned over the keys. They boarded it up. They left. They said goodbye. So I was brought in to sell the property. I have the property under, under contract to be, to be sold to uh, you know, a client of mine. And at this point, the, the, the new owner is buying a vacant property. Now, the real estate has inherent value, right? The real estate yeah. is not what failed. The business in the real estate failed. And I think there's going to be tremendous opportunities moving forward for this because you've got a lot of great real estate that's occupied by businesses that are failing. So in this case, what he did was he purchased, he's purchasing this property, you know, at a, at a, you know, relatively, you know, let's call it a fair market value. And he's now working with a major national tenant whose name I can't say because we're in the middle of it, but probably one of the best single tenant, net lease tenants that there is. And he's contracting with them. He's going to give them a certain amount of money for what's called tenant improvement allowance. So that tenant will actually do some renovations to the property. When they're finished, he'll then reimburse them. They will also spend their own money renovating the inside of the property. And when he's done with it, he's going to have a brand new 10-year lease with a national tenant uh, in in a great piece of real estate. So that's another example of um, opportunity for today in commercial real estate. And the third example is I sell a lot of shopping centers. So with shopping centers, there's a lot of ways you can add value. Number one, you can, like multifamily, you can either increase occupancy and or increase rents, right? Those are really your main drivers of value because just like in single tenant deals, like we talked about in multi-tenant, the, the value of the property is a function of the net operating income and the cap rate. You can benefit your cap rate by having better tenants and by putting some capital expenditure into your center. And you can right. better your NOI by decreasing expenses and or increasing, you know, your rents or increasing, you know, the, you know, adding, adding uh, occupancy to, to the center. So there's a lot of ways to do that. A lot, of, a lot of these mom and pop, I call them mom and pop shopping centers. They're great shopping centers. But over the years, the owners essentially said, you know what? I'm happy with these tenants. Everything's fine. Let's not raise the rents. Let's keep it the same. So there's opportunity as those tenants roll over or as their options expire for you to then bring them up to market rent. And you'd be surprised how much value you can add to the shopping center just by you know, em- employing that strategy. That's awesome. Now, is that any shopping center specific, uh, you know, strip malls or, you know, stuff with anchor tenants, or is it ap- applicable pretty much anywhere, tertiary, major market, the whole nine yards? Yeah, it's applicable anywhere. I mean, there's certain things you're going to want to look for, like you're going to want to be close to the main retail hub or in it. You're going to want to have high, tra- you know, high tri traffic counts, the road that the center sits on, you're going to want to have, you know, minimum, let's say 20,000 vehicles per day, preferably 30,000 vehicles or more. Um, you know, high population density, things like that. Um, you know, good, solid, necessary services, tenants, right? Things that you think will be there for a while. 
Um, but it can be done in, in really any type of shopping center anywhere in the country. That's awesome. That's awesome. That's huge. So, um, wow. What, what do you see for, let's call it, you know, the coming you know, wave of layoffs that are, that are hitting right now, as far as impact to your, your client base or, or who would be leasing properties from your client base for, you know, disposable income based stuff, whatever that may be. Has there been any type of blip even on the radar yet? Because I keep seeing all this stuff about consumer spending is up and credit card debt is through the roof and all these vehicle sales are defaulting, all the loans are coming and they're doing all these repossessions. Like it sounds terrible, but I haven't seen a lot of boarded up anything anywhere yet. So, I mean, if it's all this doom and gloom and all this, this stuff is, is, is coming, where is it? Yeah. I mean, it's very interesting. I kind of, I feel the same way. You know, I think that I've always shied away from office with the exception of, you know, shopping centers that have retail and a little bit of an office component or medical office, which is a whole different animal for a lot of reasons. But I think that the office in general is going to take the, you know, the, the brunt of what you just described with these layoffs from companies. And what's going to happen, Andy, is that the tenants are really going to be in the driver's seat because the landlords are going to be faced with foreclosure and, and default and all these terrible things. And there's just going to be a lot of workouts between landlords and tenants. And tenants can say, hey, listen, I, you, you know, 50% of your, your office building is vacant. I, I represent the other another 20%. You want me to leave or are you going to reduce my rent? And the, the landlords are going to reduce the rent. So that, that that's that's just kind of an aside. You know, retail spending is through the roof. The, the economy to me, from what I what I hone in on, looks pretty darn healthy, despite the fact that we have really tried our best to make something break. It really, you know, with the exception of some failing banks, the, the economy is really, I think, turning along at a good clip. You know, retail occupancy is at its highest in 18 years, right? We are, have record low retail vacancy, 4.8% nationwide. It's absolutely incredible. So yeah, I mean, listen, I think that if you look at consumer spending being up and occupancy being at, at all-time highs, that's just another argument to purchase retail assets, right? Right. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's my perspective. I think that, that retail is strong, retail is alive and well, and the fundamental nature of us as as, as a society is a consumeristic society. And, you know, so long as guys like you and me have a dollar in our pocket, retail is going to be alive and well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So what what do you see from a, a an underwriting standpoint when, when people are looking at these deals and they're trying to weigh the pros and cons? Where's the, the risk management come in? Where's, where's the cost avoidance come in? What's a smart move right now when they're actually looking at a deal for whatever pick pick a flavor that you that you specialize in and and tell us you know where should they be looking to mitigate minimize or otherwise address risk in their investing well you know i like i liken it to you know a buffet right there's a lot of food at the buffet and not every person is going to like every food right so especially today uh not every investor is looking for every type of product so i really I can't answer that question on, on, a, on a really global, generalistic, you know, perspective. But what I can tell you is that's really a case by case example. I mean, I'll give you a great example. I've got a Wendy's property right now that has, um, you know, some some challenges that it's faced. Uh, I've actually sold this property before uh, a few years ago, and now I'm selling it again. And you know, sales at this location are not not the greatest. 
but it's a very solid guarantee from a large operator for a long time. So, right. you know, inherently there's some risk in this deal and that risk is, 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 is adjusted or I should say is accounted for by a higher cap rate. Okay. Got it. So like I've been, you know, I'm counseling buyers who come to me who want to purchase the property, you know, who are saying, well, you know, there's a, there's a type of buyer who says, you know, I'm concerned. I, I don't care how big the guarantee is. Who knows? Maybe that guarantor will file for bankruptcy and I'll be left with a building. Right. So maybe right. this deal is not for that buyer. But then there are other buyers that are saying, well, hey, listen, I'm getting a good entrance cap rate. I've got a solid guarantor. There's a long term lease in place. I'm going to collect, you know, enough money during the next X number of years that are on the lease term that I'm going to, I'm essentially paying myself back what I'm spending and then I'm getting a building and, and land afterwards. So yeah, this is a deal that's for me. So again, like that first person that I mentioned, not cut out for this deal. That's not what they're looking for. They're better off going and finding a deal that maybe is a hundred or 150 basis points lower with less risk so they can sleep at night. But the other guy or girl, they're looking for this deal. They want that slightly higher cap rate in exchange for a higher risk. So I always tell people like, you know, you have to be realistic and understand that you, you, you're, you know, you're really not, unless you're buying something off market, you're not going to beat the market. You're just going to want to choose the asset that checks all the boxes that you're looking for or as many as possible. Right. People's buy box. You hear it all the time now. Bigger pockets has like glommed onto that term and everybody's talking about the buy box and blah, blah, blah. But really it comes down to your risk profile. What, what appetite do you have and can you find an exit from this, right? So I do a lot of work with family offices and there's always like the second or third thing we talk about is what's the exit strategy? You know, do yeah. I have multiple different directions I can go with this to get out of it if things go sideways? Because that's always the concern is the preservation of capital, the preservation of value and, and, and you know, having the asset do what they intended for it to do when they purchased it. So for them, that that's totally makes sense. And I think that comes down to what you said. It's super regional and there's no like blanket term, but it comes down to each individual person or entity's risk profile, right? What they're yes. comfortable with accepting. So what what else do you see going on that, you know, specifically you're 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 in it, right? And the listeners of the show, they're really into learning about not just real estate, but how they can max out their NOI, how they can max out their ROI, like where where are the the, the secrets right now in triple net or in you know just ne general net lease that people aren't paying attention to or aren't really looking at in the right light? Because you know as well as I do when you, when you start talking about cap rates from the residential buyer to commercial the math changes completely because they're they're the same thing but they work in very different inverse ways with interest rates so that's something that a lot of people don't get until they're in it for long enough but where else are you seeing you know these opportunities to 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 max out and really i don't want to say pull the equity out of a property but how are you going to make more on your investment or, or what is being done by really good operators that isn't being done by your average Joe? So first and foremost, net lease is a preservation of capital. Uh, it's generational wealth, it's stability, it's security. I mean, granted, you have a lot of benefits in, as you do in many forms of real estate with depreciation, 
um, and, you know, and other tax advantages. Um, so in, in general, you know, net lease is not a value add, uh, you know, avenue of real estate investing. It's more of a preservation of capital um, and stability and security. Obviously, there's going to be appreciation. But, um, you know, the three techniques that I mentioned being, you know, blend and extend, uh, retail value add, repurposing, I should say, and then, you know, multi, multi-tenant multi shopping center um, value add, those are going to be ways to to create a whole lot of capital very quickly. And, and I'm, I'm talking, I mean, I, I gave the example before what I think it was what, $620,000 or $640,000 yeah. in equity buildup with the stroke of a pen. Which is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, in general, I just want to, I want to present it for what it is. Um, you know, typically people are investing uh, in net lease because they want that security. They don't, they want to be able to sleep at night. Um, they don't want a pro forma. They don't want to guess at expenses. Right. They don't want that income to change, right? They want that coupon clipper. And again, th- these deals, the majority of them are absolute triple net deals, meaning, you know, you own the property, the tenant pays you rent, and that rent is net to you. They pay for the taxes on your property. They pay for the insurance on your property. They pay for all the maintenance, the management, everything. If that property needs a new roof, if it gets vandalized, if it has a flood, everything is on them. So, you know, essentially, especially when you look at the blue ribbon tenants, you know, the Chipotles, the Starbucks, the Walgreens, mm-hmm. the CBSs, um, you know, of the world, the Whole Foods, those types of tenants. I mean, these deals are really bonds that are wrapped up in sticks and bricks and and, and, right. and they should be viewed as such, you know, they're phenomenal investments for preservation of wealth um, and, and for stability and security. So I guess the question I've got is, are you seeing anything or have you seen anything that let's say less experienced owners, less experienced brokers are missing in their leases and their, their, their agreements with, potential tenants that could come back to bite them in the butt. Like, is there, is there something that has happened that you've seen where people are just like too, too dumb for their own good and they get burned, right? Is there a stupid tax? Yeah. I mean, yeah, of course. And that's why you need a good broker to look over your lease and make sure that you're, you're not missing anything, you know, as what we call wrinkles in the lease, you know, like something where the paper is folded over and you missed it. I'm, I'll give you a great example. I had a pet smart deal maybe five years ago that uh, the owner had purchased and was interested in reselling. And I was evaluating it for him and I looked over his lease. And first of all, a lot of brokers will give you an evaluation without looking at, at your lease. I, 99 times out of 100, will insist on seeing the lease before giving an evaluation. And it's specifically for situations like this. So I was looking through the lease, Andy, and I saw what's called a co-tenancy clause. So this deal, if I'm not mistaken, there was a Lowe's in the essentially in the shopping center and the PetSmart was part of the center. Um, so it's a big, you know, big box national tenant, mm-hmm. great, great center. But there was a co-tenancy clause that said that if Lowe's ever vacated, PetSmart could immediately reduce their rent by 50% or terminate their lease. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so this guy, this poor guy um, had no idea. The broker who sold it to him didn't make mention. He bought the deal. And I told him, I said, listen, I'm, I, I'm not going to lie to you. This is the value of the center. We're this, or this is the value of the PetSmart. Were this co-tenancy clause not to be in there, the value would be, you know, X. But, you know, that's a great example of this guy didn't realize. And he, he you know, he made a three or $400,000 mistake right there. And, and, you know, 
Unfortunately, um, I, I've seen it happen all the time. Another example, now this is more like upon lease origination. So let's say you, you're buying a brand new uh, building or you're doing a build to suit where you actually have the um, the ability to, to negotiate the lease terms. Like for example, the deal I mentioned earlier about that former Burger King. Well, they're in the lease negotiation stage. So my client has the opportunity to negotiate with this national tenant. So this national tenant is notorious for termination clauses, allowing them to terminate, you know, let's say after five years, they can terminate the lease. So that's something I'm telling them, hey, man, make sure you negotiate that out of there. You don't want that, right? That's one thing. Another example, in in deal in, in QSR deals, quick service restaurant deals, you know, Taco Bell's, Wendy's, um, mm-hmm. you know, Chick-fil-A's, things like that. Um, you're going to want to know to the best of your abilities how the site is performing. Uh, and, and the way to do that is to obtain unit level financials, you know, to see how is that site, you know, doing? What are their sales like? So a lot of leases don't call for sales reporting. I always tell my clients, if you, if you have a choice, buy the deal that calls for sales reporting so that you know. And also, if you're doing a negotiation with your tenant and they're asking for something, always ask for something in return. If they want a reduction in rent, say, okay, fine, but I need, you know, financial reporting every year, something like that so that you know what's going on. So those are, you know, examples um, of, of uh, you know, of things that are important to look out for. I mean, I have, I, it's funny because you would think driving down the highway that every Wendy's is the same. But I remember during the pandemic, I had one Wendy's I was, I was listing that said that in the lease, it had a clause, under no circumstances will there ever be rent abatement. Will the rent ever change or go down or any of that? And I had another lease that said, and this lease was written 20 years ago, in the event of a government shutdown, the tenant will pay 40% of their rent, right? Huh. Same exact Wendy's. One of them is paying 40% of their rent during the pandemic, and the other one is paying 100% of their rent. So you want to look at wow. things like that. And that's why it's important to have a good attorney and a good broker looking over your lease, making sure that there aren't any wrinkles. That's what I was going to say is you would think that the attorneys would really be on top of big gaps like that. And again, not all brokers are created equal. Not all attorneys are created equal. But when you're doing your due diligence and you're, and you're trying to find a partner as a, you know, a broker partner, an attorney partner, whatever, what kind of, of conversation do you have to vet them? Like, how do you know if these people actually are good or if they just suck? Because I've seen everything from horror stories where I just saw one that hit Twitter the other day where there was a $16 million loan and this law firm in New York City dinged $180,000 onto the the closing at the last minute with no notice, no transparency, and they just ended up paying it because it was there. I mean, that should have been a $50,000 bill. It shouldn't have been one hundred eighty grand, but it was like a last minute thing. And now they just burned a whole bunch of bridges because no one will use them for, you know, in that world again. But when you're vetting these people, I mean, other than just word of mouth, what is there? So I guess if you're talking about from my perspective as the broker who's, yeah. you know, working with other professionals, you know, I have my close circle of referrals that I'll make, you know, when somebody, for example, I got a shopping center in West Michigan right now, the buyer is, is, is out of, you know, he lives in Hawaii. So I referred a, 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 um, an attorney that I wor- worked with a number of times and that transaction is proceeding very smoothly, right? I've got another deal just last night, um, 10 o'clock at night, I was writing an email back because we have an accepted LOI that I drafted, right? I'm oh, no. the buyer and the seller. I drafted it. I know it like the back of my hand and we accepted it. We meaning the seller accepted it. 
right. for a lot of reasons. But one of them was that there was a $100,000 non-refundable earnest money deposit. So when I hear that, I get excited because that's a deal that's right. going to close. And that, that's the type of buyer I want for my seller. Well, I got the, you know, the, the attorneys are going back and forth with the purchase agreement, which should be a mirror, right? With some additions, but a mirror of the yeah. letter of intent. And the seller's attorney sent it back to the buyer's attorney. And in there, it said $100,000 refundable deposit. The due diligence was longer. The purchase price was different. And it's not like this was just submitted to the seller's attorney. Seller's attorney sent it back with other changes and not that. I said, you know what? I said, this is not my job, but these are my clients and I have to stand up. So I, at 10 o'clock at night last night, I wrote a long email, you know, very carefully, all due respect, you know, and ultimately I wanted to make it very clear that the, the decision for this contract rested with the sellers and their attorney. But as their agent, I have a duty to protect them. And these are the seven or 10 things. And I went line by line that purchase agreement, calling them out, saying like, hey, this is something that in the LOI, it says this. And in the purchase agreement, it says this. It's got to go this way. So, you know, I think that, that, that for me, I don't have control over that attorney, but I have control over myself. And I have to make sure that my client is, is, being, is being serviced properly. And I, I have to, you know, I have a duty to the client and to the deal to get it done. So I, I guess what I'm saying to you is that and not at not at all times do I have the control over those vendors, right? But I have to step in when necessary to make sure that things are done properly. Now, on the other side of things, is if you're the actual investor, right, and you're looking for a broker, for example, get on the phone with that broker, Google that broker. If you Google me, you will see about 300 podcast appearances. You'll see a course, you'll right. see all kinds of things. You can get to know me in five minutes on the internet. But also, as at the end of the show, I'll, I'll give out my number. Give me a call on my cell phone. Talk to me. Get to know me. See if I'm, am I the type of person? You know, again, it's a buffet, right? Not every broker is for every client. So am I, am I the, the type of, of broker that you're looking for? And I would hope the answer would be yes. But you know, what you're going to want to look for is you want someone who's thorough. You want that guy that on a Wednesday night is going to stay up, you know, at 10 o'clock at night and go over that contract, even though it's not his job, even though the deal will probably get done, right? You want that person that's looking out for you. That wants, you know, that has that standard of excellence and, and is going to be thorough and meticulous. And you want an expert, right? I can't tell you how many times I've dealt with people who hired a residential broker. All due respect to residential brokers. You guys are great at selling houses, right? But they hire a residential broker to sell their McDonald's, right? No, it's don't apples do that. and oranges. Hire you can't do expert. it. Yeah, this is all do I it. do. I only do net lease. If you want net lease, I'm your man. If you want multifamily, I am not taking the listing. I will gladly refer you to a great colleague. Who will take care of you, but this is what I do. This is what I specialize in, and this is where you know I want to stay. That's awesome. So, for everybody listening or watching on YouTube, the lesson is: team up with a good broker. That's yep. that's that's what you got to do, and make sure that it's their wheelhouse. You're just like when you're doing residential. We've talked about it before on the show. If you're dealing with your cousin Ted that part times it and is selling residences to homeowners. You don't use them for your investment properties because you're not going to get a good result from that relationship. You need somebody who full-times it and understands the market. So that being said, Dan, what markets are you in? What do you specialize in? And what types of properties and stuff should people reach out to you for specifically? Yeah, so nationwide, I sell property in every single state in the country. Uh, but I specialize in net lease. So I specialize in single tenant net lease, for example, Starbucks and Walgreens and CVS and Chick-fil-A, um, Aspen Dental, 
Dollar General, Family Dollar, these types of properties, multi-tenant properties, right? I also do a medical office. Uh, I said discount retailers, auto, automotive parts stores, um, some resorts. I, I sold you know $50 million worth of resorts uh, last year. Um, and uh, you know anything in the net lease space specifically. If you want to talk about anything commercial real estate, pick up the phone. I'm glad to talk. And if you need a referral, I'm glad to make one. Um, but as a broker, I would be more than happy to assist in anything related to the to the net lease space. Um, if you have property and you want to know what it's worth, please reach out to me. Um, or if you just want a set of another set of eyes on a deal, even if it's not my deal, I don't care. Let's go through it together. Make sure you're doing the right thing. Um, and you know, anything I can do to provide value, I'm happy to help. Awesome. So how do people get in touch with you? Sure. So first of all, I'm very active on LinkedIn. So you can check me out there. First name is Dan, last name Lukowitz, L-E-W-K-O-W-I-C-Z. Again, L-E-W-K-O-W-I-C-Z. Google me, my, all my information will pop up that way as well. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm happy to give out my direct line, my cell phone number, if anybody wants to reach out directly. My number is 248-943-2838. Again, 248-943-2838. Please reach out. And if there's anything I can do to help, it would be my pleasure. That's awesome. Dan, thank you so much. It's been good catching up. I appreciate you coming on the program. This has been great. I hope the listeners got some knowledge out of it. I honestly hope that they have more questions so they can reach out to you and build that relationship and you know start working with a good broker who can handle whatever it is they're looking to do and even discuss you know the the, the, the benefits of net lease over multifamily if that's the what they the, what they want to do. So preser- preservation of capital. And asset value versus forced appreciation. Different different business models, same goal, generational wealth. Please, if you are on YouTube watching this right now, hit that bell and subscribe. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, wherever podcasts are found, please subscribe, like, comment. Leave me three or four stars, five stars. Send me a message. Let me know what you think. Podcast at tcomethod.com. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate you. Yeah.